where Jesus will begin working miracles in the presentation of the Gospel of Matthew, some of the most enjoyable narrative, um, in my opinion, in uh, the Gospels. I wonder if anybody knows what the first miracle Jesus does in Matthew is. <laughs> some of you are like, what? I, I, why are they laughing? I need my glasses. All right. So we're in Matthew chapter 8. We're, lo- we're studying the gospel of Matthew. We're going verse by verse, verse by verse through Matthew 8. And we're kind of opening uh, what I believe is a new section after Jesus gave his talk. It's definitely a transition because he just gave the Sermon on the Mount and he's done speaking. You know, are you building your house on the rock or on the sand as the foundation? And uh, are you on the narrow path that leads to life or the broad path, the broad way that leads to destruction? And so now he is going to talk about, uh, Matthew is going to tell us of various encounters that Jesus has with other people, with his disciples, with Gentiles, and all different kinds of experiences leading up to his challenge and equipping of the disciples for ministry in Matthew 10. And there's a retrospective sense where we just heard the lawgiver explain the law in Matthew 5 through 7, the, what the law was for, how is righteousness exhibited in the law, what is God's kingdom platform, what are we supposed to do about that, uh, and, and to that first century audience, how are they supposed to receive Christ? And then in Matthew chapter 8, looking back at him giving the law, the first thing is he's going to heal a leper. He's going to cleanse the unclean. And it's not about the externals. It's about the internal thing. Remember that big, big theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in Matthew, we could outline it. We have outlined it. We looked at this many times together. <clears throat> we said that you have the introduction of the king in chapters 1 through 4. And then right about 4.12, we begin the narratives leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, which we just finished. And now we're looking at what I call disciple discourse number one in Matthew, which is Matthew chapter 10, mostly. Matthew chapter 10 through like 11 verse 1, where Jesus is telling them to go out and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And this is important to understand the Bible in the time in which it was written. Jesus is present. His disciples are going throughout all the cities of, of Israel, not to anyone else. They're not going to the nations. They're going to Israel and saying, repent, Israel, for the kingdom is in your grasp. It's here. Receive it. It's the preparation. And the general and general strokes, the rejection of that message is presented in chapters 11 through 14. Chapters 11 through 13, verse 53, is the opposition to that message that they went throughout to proclaim because uh, the nation is rejecting. And that's why I call this part the turning point. The turning point in the Gospel of Matthew is right around chapters 12 and 13 when Jesus begins uh, the kingdom parables. And so we're we're walking through um, the, the disciple discourse number two happens between chapters 14 and 19, or 14 and 18, it's mostly chapters 17 and 18, which is another discipleship discourse. See, the discourse, this, these are all the discourse, all the big messages Jesus gave, gives in Matthew that he structures around. Sermon on the Mount, five through seven, the disciple discourse number one, chapter 10. The turning point is the parables of chapter 13, the kingdom parables. And then 
the response of the king to their rejection in chapters 17 and 18 with narrative stories leading up to these things. And then finally, the rejection of Christ and the formal presentation of Christ. Jesus says, here's what's coming in my second advent in chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. So this is the structure of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's helpful to remember that because we get focused on the flashy things, but I think God generally focuses our attention on the conceptual propositional things. When he says something in writing, it's, uh, it's got a flashy miracle that attended it when it was first given. Paul is doing all kinds of miracles in his ministry for a time. But, but we don't have those miracles. Now we have stories about them. We have the, the history of those miracles. But what we have is the message. Jesus gave this great, the greatest sermon ever taught, the Sermon on the Mount. And now he's going to be doing these miracles. We don't have, we're not going to, I'm not going to touch a leper and he'd be healed. Not today. But I have the message that Jesus gave that those miracles authenticated. And the challenge to be his disciples is where we're headed in Matthew 8. Now, Jesus called disciples in the first, um, the, in, in the first part of the, the lead up to the Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 4, some of the disciples. And now we're going to hear the works of Jesus in the presence of the disciples because the kingdom is being offered. And so the works of the kingdom are in view. And so we'll, we'll um, hopefully read together through Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, the first little introduction after being told about the law and God's priorities in the law, we have Jesus healing the leper. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So he gave his message, and now the crowds are following him. He's going to authenticate that message, I believe, with these works of power. He's speaking God's word, and he comes in God's power. A leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. There is so much in that statement. There is the proposition of sound theology. If you want to, you can clean me up. If you are willing, you can do it. The expressed volition of the speaker is in view. I'm willing for you to heal me. Heal me. And I'm stating theology that if you're willing, you can heal me. It's a sort of an oblique way of asking. Instead of saying, heal me, he says, if you're willing, willing, you can heal me. I know who you are in the sense that you have the power to do something that's never been done. Leprosy was once cured in the presence of Moses when his sister, Miriam, had a problem with Moses uh, marrying the Ethiopian woman. She, she tried to kind of mount a coup against her brother. And, um, and then she, uh, you remember Moses, one of the first signs God gave him, pull your, put your hand in and pull it out, it's leprous, put it back, it's, it's clean. Well, Miriam is struck with leprosy when she tries to oppose Moses' leadership. And, and Moses has to pray, he has to intercede on her behalf, and she is restored. And, um, the, but leprosy is not something that's been been cured like we're about to see, uh, except in some rare cases where, uh, you know, everyone stands up and takes notice. You've got, you've got the Elisha story and um, the, the Syriac uh, who has to wash in the Jordan. But the leper, this is a horrible condition, and it is not presented as somebody that's morally corrupt. It's somebody who has a condition that they can't do anything about. I can't solve my own leprosy. 
Now, the reason that's a good illustration for sin is that we're born in sin. We didn't choose to be sinners. We choose to sin because we are sinners. We're born with this problem, with this condition. It's an unpopular view for people that want to have a higher view of humans than we should. We're broken and corrupt from the factory with, with Adam. When Adam corrupted himself, he corrupted the race that came from him. I mean, all the human beings, I should say the species that has come from him. And so we're just like lepers in that sense that we are trapped and there's nothing we can do about it. The leper has to wash in the Jordan and God has to work a miracle. The leper has to have Moses intercede and God work a miracle. The leper has to have Jesus, if he's willing, heal the person and God works a miracle. And you and I who are sinners need God to save us by his grace and only through faith. And that's being exhibited here as he's going to trust in the Lord Jesus. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. The leper had faith that Jesus could do it. He did not say, Jesus, I hereby call into being that which was not, and you hereby, because you are Jesus, give me the healing I demand. Now that's the way the prayers are being taught on TV, that we are presumptuous and we're calling forth the power of God as though he's a genie and we are the master of the lamp. But the leper comes with humility. If you're willing, I know you can clean me up. And Jesus says, I am willing. I think this is a model for our prayer. I think we should always give place to God's timing. Hezekiah is dying of cancer, something like cancer, seems like. Prays for God to heal him. God hears his prayer, heals him, gives him, I think, 15 more years. It gives him just enough time to give us Manasseh. Sometimes it's better to go home. And, uh, and, and look, we all have the things that we want, but we're not good at wanting. We're not good at wanting. We want God to get what he wants, whatever it is. Are you there? The leper's there. If you're willing, you can make me clean. I'm willing, be cleansed. That's the deal. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And then we have the introduction in Matthew on a topic that is not super present in Matthew like it is in Mark. Mark really emphasized what the theologians have called the messianic secret, where Jesus says, don't tell anybody. It's a very common thing in Mark. It happens a few times in Matthew. Do not tell anybody. And that's a question for us to ponder. Let's think about it. When Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest, present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Go and present to the priest what the Mosaic law requires for the cleansed leper. Now, don't tell anybody, but tell the priest. That means you don't go around telling all your neighbors and family and friends and get a big crowd together to come out and see the magic show. Don't tell anyone but the priests. Now, there are two things happening. We're not telling the crowd to stir up a big mob of, of popular, famous glorious frenzy about Jesus and everyone all of a sudden wears a t-shirt with Jesus' face on it. It's not about popular acclaim, but you do go to the leadership and you show them that the kingdom's being offered. You go to the priest. Moses embedded this. God planned this. This was, I should say, God embedded this in the Mosaic law that when the Messiah would come, the priests would know. Did they know? Did they receive I think of these priests, you know, Zechariah is a priest. He's one of these people, the father of John the Baptist we've heard about, especially in Luke. 
Zechariah is a priest. When he sees an angel with God's word in God's temple, he says, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Priests have a problem generally. And it's the problem we all face at times we think we know. And when something comes along that we didn't know or I'm not sure about, changes our thinking, we have to deal with that information. And I am a big fan of healthy skepticism. I think I'll take a verse out of context in Romans 3 and say, let God be true, though every man a liar. I'm very skeptical, especially in the world we live in today where everybody knows a bunch of stuff that isn't true. But when God tells us, I contend we shouldn't be skeptical, we should not be unbelieving, but believing. When God's word or when God's revelation, which is God's word, is in view, it's time to receive it with simple childlike faith, simple leper-like faith in Matthew 8. If you're willing, you can make me clean. I'm willing, be cleansed. You go show the priest, but don't tell anyone else. Now, I contend that the message of the messianic secret is that Jesus has a mission, and his mission is not to stir up popular acclaim, but to, to, to go after the nation through the leadership, and the leadership in receiving him do their job. The priests are supposed to bring people to the Lord. The priests are supposed to intercede before between the Lord and the people to mediate. There's supposed to be this priesthood function. He's respecting the institutions that the Father has erected in Israel. And so the way to come to the nation is for the leadership to say, here he is. And they're going to say absolutely the opposite. In chapter 9, they're going to start this lie that Jesus is casting out demons in the power of Satan. And this is called the blasphemy of the Spirit. By the, by the time you get to chapter 12, they've rejected as a nation, and he begins to speak to them in parables. The reason the crowds come out with Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord, a week before he is resurrected. The reason they come out on Palm Sunday is because there is the national popular, sort of populist um, like fervor for, the, for the, the hope, for the guy that's the hope. But the hope that the people on the street are expecting is deliverance from Rome. It's healing from our sicknesses. It's all the things that we want, but we don't know what God wants. And he's looking for us to receive eternal life, to know him, to be about his things and to sub submit to him. And so the popular, the populist thing, notice a good time for us to hear this. The populist uprising thing that Jesus could bring, he's not interested in. That's not what I'm here for. It's not my mission. And so that's not what we're here for either. The leper, though, is he's got a clue. Another thing I want to bring out about the leper as the first miracle is he's the first expression of faith that we see in this portion of Scripture where you have a faith in the person and then Christ's willingness to heal the person's faith. And that's going to be a theme. And people talk about faith healing. And so he's trusting in Christ. And then Jesus is, is healing him. And even, it's going to be even tighter connected when you're, you know, um, you've been healed according to your faith. This is always emblematic of the ultimate healing. This is not if you're really a Christian, then if you really trust in Christ, he really heal you of your disease. That's not the point of the, of the narrative. The point is that what Jesus offers can only be received by faith. And yes, we are going to die physically, even like Lazarus. Lazarus is a weird person because I know it says there's a point unto man wants to die and then the judgment, but Lazarus died twice right? Lazarus died and then Jesus rose him, raised him again, uh, even though the body stinketh. <laughs> and then he died later. There was even a plot to kill Lazarus who had been resurrected. So what I'm trying to say is even if Jesus does a physical miracle on you, you're still going to die. 
unless the Lord comes and gets us. And we're in that one generation where we don't physically die like Enoch. But, but that's, we don't plan on that. We expect it, but we don't plan on it. So what I'm saying is the issue is always the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate salvation, the promised resurrection to life. Beloved, you and I are called to suffer, and we will suffer in various ways. We will suffer for our faith, and we will suffer through our faith. We will trust in Christ through whatever the suffering is, people-generated, anthropogenic suffering, health suffering, whatever the challenge, government oppression suffering, financial suffering. We are going to have occasions where God says, I'm the only way out. You're going to have to trust me. And we trust him, and it's going to hurt. And sometimes it's going to feel like being dragged across broken glass as you trust him. But I promise you that that broken glass phase of your experience is only for this few decades. It's short, it's intense, it's very clear what the Lord wants us to do and in whose power he wants us to do it. And so I want us to get our minds off of the temporal healing picture and onto the eternal healing that every single one of you believers in Jesus Christ has already received. And can God heal someone of their sicknesses? Absolutely. Absolutely. All through right here. He can. But is he in, inevitably and always willing to if you just have enough faith? No, that's not the point of the message. Oh, you just don't have enough faith so you don't, have, so you don't get healed. It's a popular message. It's a populist message. Jesus is actually operating against the populist impulse in this passage. In verses one through, or five through 13, you have now going from a, a, a very obviously, a, I think a Jewish leper, in context must be a Jewish leper to a Gentile centurion. Jesus just gave the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about the purpose of the Mosaic law. He's talking to national Israel. And he is, is gonna, in this phase of chapters um, eight through uh, 10, he's equipping the disciples to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Matthew, the Jewish, the most Jewish focused, Judaic focused gospel is now blowing the audience's mind as we're hearing about a Gentile centurion as the second miracle coming to Jesus. You got to read it in its context. Matthew's writing to a Jewish Christian readership. He is an unclean, dirty turncoat. He is a tax collector working for the Romans and extorting his people. Remember Zacchaeus, a tax collector. What do I do to repent, Lord? And he says, well, paraphrasing, what do I need to do? Stop taking more than you're supposed to take in taxes. Stop extorting your people. This is, the, this is their racket. This is what the tax collectors do. Matthew is an unclean, untouchable, just like the leper, just like the centurion. And so this is breaking down the false paradigms that people had erected. See, national Israel is supposed to be a priest set among all the nations where everybody can look at it and say, oh, those people rest on day, uh, day six, just like the creator. Or, sorry, day seven. It's obviously day seven, the Sabbath. Uh, he, he, he rests on, they rest on day seven like the creator. And they um, do certain things and don't do other things because they say they belong to the creator. And there's this distinction being made. And, and this is what it's like. And you have these people that come, a few from around the Gentile nations to learn of Yahweh. It's, it's, it's a foretaste of what's going to happen in this coming kingdom of Christ as prophesied in, for example, um, Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 4 and other places. Well, here you get kind of this foretaste, the Jewish Messiah having just exposited the Jewish law to a Jewish discipleship. And Matthew writing about it to a Jewish Christian audience is going to say, hey, you remember how the Gentiles are among us? Matthew's writing, remember, in sometime after the 30s. 
you have the Pentecost event where all the nations are going to be evangelized, beginning in Acts chapter 2, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. So there, th- this mission to the Gentiles is going on for quite a while by the time Matthew writes this. And so that's not a shock, but here's the origin of it. You first century Jewish Christian readers in Judea who are learning about this Messiah and how the Gentiles are coming to him. Jesus, and, and when Jesus entered Capernaum, now Capernaum, we're told early, earlier, is a city that Jesus of Nazareth settled in as his city, a city on the coast. So it's important in the context because these are the various ministries Jesus conducts in the town of Capernaum. A centurion came to him, imploring him. Now, how old is a centurion? Does anybody know how old a centurion is? He's not 100 years old. That was a trick question. I can write exams for the DMV. Um, a centurion is not 100 years old, but he does have 100 of something. Yeah, the idea is about 100 troops, and he represents the commander of one. Today, um, we, that, to, in my understanding, in the Army doctrine for our United States Army would be a company commander for light infantry. That's 100, about 100 people. Um, that's really light company today. We, we have a lot, probably half again more in a light after company, maybe even more than that, depending. But, but it's, uh, think about how, what you can do with 100 people, 100 troops. If you have uh, 12 or, or 15 man teams or you know, break them off into 20 man teams and the sub teams in there, you could do a lot of maneuver and cover a lot of uh, defense or attack with, uh, 20, with 100 people. And, um, and company commander is probably, that's how I think of the centurion, um, which is, he's not the general, you know, company commander wins the war, but it, by, by bleeding and dying and, and holding the hill, these guys are the, these guys are kind of the front line um, in leadership. And so uh, a lot of kudos to this man. The Roman centurions are treated very well by the gospels because uh, in many cases they received the message that Jesus represented the centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. That's the first shot of Jesus offering to appear, to show up. Now think about that. Jesus doesn't have to come and heal him, but he's offering to. Is there another Roman centurion that comes to mind? We talk about someone coming, someone from Jesus coming to their house. Cornelius is this Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapters uh, 9 and 10 with Peter being told, go to Cornelius' house. And then Peter goes to the house, preaches the gospel, and all the people receive the Holy Spirit. And then Peter has to tell the exact same story again to the people back in Judea to establish that the Gentiles are coming to Christ. This is kind of, a, of, a, of, of an event that points to that in Matthew's narration. I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, kurios, that's also sir in Greek. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. So, so many things are happening. Think about that. L- listen to that verse and let it be your devotion this week if you want. Listen, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's the question theologically of who am I? Who am I? Well, I think I'm the one that's not getting treated the way I'd like to be treated. But if you listen to the centurion, he has the correct attitude. He's got greater faith than all of Israel, Jesus says. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. How about that attitude toward God? This reestablishes the perspective of the magnificence of God's grace. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And then he says, 
Just say the word and my servant will be healed. But you are who you are. See, this is the great theological questions. Who am I? Then that's really the second question. Who is God? Who is God? He's the righteous, holy, good, and loving one. Who am I? I'm the broken, sinful, petty, you know, uh, mess. And that's the derangement. And yet he loves me. And so I can revel. See, I just gave you a basis for constant joy. If you really understand who you are. Now, I know that's, that's very cynical. I'm not, I'm not promoting your sense of individual autonomous self-esteem. You don't get to think so highly of yourself if you think like the centurion. What's the trade-off? You get to rejoice. You get to know that God loves you anyway. And he is who he is. He's the loving, holy one who is dealing with you in your brokenness. So nevertheless, Cornel, or the, the, this centurion says, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I also, now here's the explanatory conjunction, Gar. For I'm going to explain why this is important, that you would, why I know that you can do what you want. I am a man under authority. Now, the, I looked closely at this. Under is hupa, authority is exousia. And if you've been with me a little bit, you know that exousia means authority. It means the person with the right to make the decision. What he's saying is that I also am under authority. And this means that he knows that Jesus is operating under someone's authority. He's saying we have this in common. I have a higher authority under whom I'm exercising my authority. It's more complicated. I know you just read through. We just kind of you know, just kind of ski across the surface of the text. But listen to it. He says, I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Higher authority over me, here I am, and then there are soldiers under me. He's saying, I'm like you in that sense. And that means that he understands something of the Trinity. He understands there's a Father on, on whose bidding Jesus is operating. We've seen this as the Spirit descended like a dove on Jesus coming out of the water, being brought out of the water, being brought out of the water. A spirit, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended on him. And then the Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son. This is Matthew 4. See, Jesus is the Son. The Holy Spirit of God is the Spirit. And his Father, the Father, is God the Father. And this arrangement is presented in Matthew. See, these Christians in 50 or 55 or so AD know that we have a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's being presented, it's just assumed as we read. And so the centurion, echo, the centurion echoes this thought. Isn't that cool? I say to this one, go, and he goes. Well, that guy's rough. What, a, what kind of leadership model is that? That's authority. He's just saying, I have the authority to dispatch what I want. I, can, I am a man under authority. That authority has been given to me. Then I have delegated authority down. So I, under the authority, the one above me, give a, a, a orders to those under my authority. It's, an, it's a rank structure. Go, and he goes. The another come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, the centurion considers this a sufficient explanation of Jesus. Why he says, you don't have to come. You can just say it and it'll be done. It's sufficient for you to understand that I know that you are under your father's authority and you therefore have delegated responsibilities and you can do under his direction what you want to do. So you don't have to come physically. It's not about your physical presence. It's not about you physically laying hands. It's about your authority and your power. And I know you have this power. 
And this, think about this, I'm, I'm building this up because of what Jesus is going to say about him. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. That's a theological thought right there. He marveled. Ponder that. In the humanity of Christ, he said, this is different. In his omniscience as God in the flesh, he's not marveling. But in his humanity, you can see he's marveling. And he said to those who were following. Now, notice, that's a little subtle point about why Matthew's writing the, the things that he's writing. He said to those following, there's this crowd, there's an audience. Jesus is having a dialogue with the centurion, but there's other people, the disciples that are following him. And he says to those around, he says, I haven't seen um, greater, let me read it. He says, truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, who did he say those words to? If your finger's in the Bible, you know the answer. When Jesus heard what the centurion said, I'm a man under authority, you can, you can just dispatch, you can just do it because you're under authority too and you have the authority delegated and I know how this works. So you just say it, it'll be done. He marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you who are following me, you other Jewish disciples, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. That's kind of an indictment to those that are listening. It's not an indictment. It's just a comparison. This Gentile centurion and you guys who have been listening with me, you guys that are following me, this guy's working for the Kiliarch or whatever. You are my disciples and he's got it and you guys don't have it yet. And that's a big theme in the gospels, the building of the disciples into men of strength, men of solid faith. And even at the end of the gospels, you see Peter, the rock or the little rock off the old block. Peter doesn't have the stability to stand and, um, and bear witness for Jesus Christ in um, Jesus' betrayal. Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is fulfillment. This is promise uh, and, and echoing prophecies of the Old Testament. He's preaching Isaiah when he says that, that the Gentiles are going to come and worship at the table of Abraham in the coming kingdom at, in Jerusalem with Jesus ruling on the throne of David in Mount Zion. The Abrahamic covenant finally being fulfilled forever. The Davidic covenant finally being filled forever. The new covenant being fulfilled forever. These promises that God has made to Israel with the benefits to all the nations. But the sons of the kingdom, that would be these Jews that are rejecting him, those who belong to it by, by their Jewish identity but are rejecting it. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this theological nugget that Jesus drops in here is teaching the disciples on the occasion of the dialogue with the centurion. Sometimes I know we read through, we kind of ski across the top, and we think Jesus is telling the centurion all this important information about what's coming. The centurion is certainly hearing what Jesus says, but he's telling this to those that he's training. He's that mama lion, pardon the, the but, but the female lion trains the cubs to hunt. He's showing them in the moment how to think about what we're encountering and how does the Old Testament prophecy and therefore the Bible relate to this circumstance. This is actually some Deuteronomy chapter six stuff. This is as we go along the way, as we sit in our house, as we rise up, as we lie down. This is connecting things that we encounter to the word of God and to the worship of God. So the Gentile comes, the Jews are like, they're kind of back there, a bunch of little 
chickens back there clucking, burk, burk, Jew, a Gentile, a Gentile guy. There's a burk, burk, there. and and Jesus is like, hey, hey, little chickens, he's got it, and y'all don't have it yet. And this is emblematic of what's coming. The Gentiles are going to come from east to west and recline at Abraham's table in the kingdom, in the coming kingdom. Understand he's talking about still something that is future to us. And yes, today, the Gentiles have embraced Jesus Christ in comparison to the Jews. But um, don't worry about that distinction too much uh, in the time which we live because we are watching a post-Christian Western civilization reject Christ uh, at alarming speed. And, um, and that thought is rapidly disintegrating from our civilization. We are more and more encountering humans that we, that we speak to, like the Apostle Paul did, people that have no context for the message of the Jewish Messiah. People have really no idea. Their, their only notion about the Jews is that there's a war over there. And then, and then whatever anti-Semitic screed is being presented to them by their teachers who are educated in our uh, various halls of academia. Jesus looks back at the centurion. Jesus said to the centurion, verse 13, go, it shall be done for you as you've believed. So there's that concept of faith. You've trusted me. Just like the leper said, you can do it if you want. Okay, I want. That's the faith point. Now, again, if you are struggling with something, you want God to deliver you from it, and he hasn't. It is not necessarily because you don't believe that he will. It's because you don't believe that he can if there's a faith component. Understand. You cannot co-opt God's volition, his sovereign authoritative decision-making with your wanting something. That's not a biblical notion. And we're not called to do that. And it's very popular to say that. If I really force God with my powerful prayer and entreaty, it's not how it works. God doesn't stop being God just because you are called the sons of God in Romans 8. You need to ask him, you need to seek, and you need to knock. And God has the very best. And sometimes the answer is no. I think no is the most wonderful theological word that we totally don't get very often. It's, most, it's a very fantastic concept. Garth Brooks had it figured out in 1990, right, with the word no. You remember the, the word no in Garth Brooks? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Remember that? Because I wanted her, and then I saw her later and didn't want her anymore. And uh, thank God for what he did provide, that kind of thing, that unanswered prayers thing. Now, I had people quibble with me about this. Back in the 90s? Well, it's not that you, you know, it's not an unanswered prayer if God says no. The answer is no. And that's right. If God says no, revel. Revel in the glory of God saying no. But I want to lick the outlet. No. <laughs> I want to play in the pretty yellow uh, solid stripes on the road. No. You know, we're like Wiley e. Coyote, and God's like, no, don't go to Acme at all. Just don't do it. But I want to. Don't do it. I want to go gamble. I want to go do something stupid. Don't do it. And God, when God says no and he stops you, revel, rejoice. So I'm just saying the theology of healing and Jesus healing and the faith component is not that I believe he will do it. It's that I believe he can do it. And if he wants to, he will. And I respect and honor his decision. And remember, believers in Christ, remember the attitude of the Apostle Paul about physical death and eternal life. He said in Philippians 1, it's better for me to go and be with him. It's better. But I'm confident that he's going to keep me here because he has work for me to do and serve with you. That's one of the great themes of Philippians chapter 1. It's better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's better. So, 
So we see this concept of faith uh, reemphasized in verse 13. Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. What did the centurion believe? He requested that Jesus do it. He believed that he could do it just by saying it, just by choosing to do it from a distance. Just as you believe, it's done. In that very moment, in that very instant, what does it say? The servant was healed that very moment. All right, we're in Capernaum. And now we're going to blow up the whole concept of Peter as the Pope. Uh, (laughs) How in the world can you be a celibate priest with a mother-in-law? You can't. That's the end of that little uh, theological aside. Peter's mother-in-law and many others healed. When we get to verse 14 through 17, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and her fever left her and she got up and waited on him. Mother's-in-law, she got up and waited on him. Uh, No, it's not a message about how you need to do chores, but it is to say that Peter had a wife. His wife's mother was sick. Jesus, who is uh, the disciple maker, the, the, the trainer of Peter, the master, comes to Peter's home and sees the sick in Peter's home and heals them. But it's beautiful that then, because she has health, what does she do with it? Because he touched her hand and healed her, what does that free her up to do? She could do lots of things. There's lots of opportunity. She's a woman in a household, and so she feels required, no doubt culturally obligated, but it's a beautiful cultural thing, obligated to provide hospitality. So the visitor in my home has just healed me. I'm going to wait on him. I'm now able to do that. I have a principle in this thought that is a beautiful thought to me. I'd love to meet Peter's mother-in-law and ask her about this. If Jesus gives you something, figure out how you can use it for him. This is is John 17, we talked about first hour. If God gives you something, how can I turn this around to your glory and honor? That's what it's for. He heals her, she gets up with that health and then waits on him. When evening came, they brought him to many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were ill. And notice there are demon-possessed and then there are sick. And sometimes there's this, this doctrine of demonism and demon possession is a challenging topic. Uh, and, and it's especially evident in the Gospels. It's not a big Old Testament topic, although I believe it happens in the Old Testament in Genesis 3. Why is the serpent speaking Satan's words? Because he's possessed by Satan. I think it happens in Isaiah 14. Why is the king of uh, Babylon called the king of Babylon, but he's got the attitude and, and acts of Satan because he's possessed by Satan? I think it happens in Ezekiel 28 when you have the king of Tyre. And why does he have that character and history and fall of Satan, but he's called the king of Tyre? Because he's indwelt, he's possessed by Satan. Why does Judas go out and do what he does quickly because Satan entered him. Because this is what you see throughout the scriptures that one of the key MO, modus operandi of the demons, especially Satan, is to possess people and to uh, operate through them. And the last uh, man of, of opposition to God, the last king of the earth raging against God is called Antichrist. He's possessed and empowered by Satan. So it's a common uh, thought a little bit. It happens through the Bible, but it's very evident in the Gospels that they're bringing demon-possessed people to Jesus and he's casting the demons out. Nowhere does it tell you and me to do this. We don't have any instructions for how to do it, but Jesus does it. And I believe he is representing that the coming kingdom has a, is a thousand year period. The first thousand years is a binding of Satan and there will be no demon activity 
it will be bound. It will be tamped down in anticipation of the great white throne judgment and the uh, entrance of Satan and his fallen angels into the lake of fire. The, the kingdom is not characterized by Satan's attacks and, and the, the demonic uh, oppression of humans. And Jesus even has power over these evil spirits. Now, we are not in our humanity more powerful than the angels. And we're not told to revile angelic majesties. Nowhere does the Bible say go around with your friends holding hands, praying over various territories. Praying over territorial spirits and other things that are popular in especially charismatic spiritual warfare talk are not biblical ideas. And what we try to do is keep our finger in the Bible. But what I do want you to know is that this human being who's in the flesh of man but is actually God, he has power over the demons. He can say, out. And they go out and they're doing it in the power. They're doing it because he has this power from, it turns out, in, if you watch it, from the Holy Spirit working in him. So the concept of demonism and demon possession comes up here. And I don't want to sensationalize it. And I want you to understand it in, in its appropriate way we deal with this. We're told in Jude not to revile angelic majesties. That means fallen angelic majesties, the enemy. We're not supposed to be uh, cursing Satan or taunting Satan or taunting demons. We're not supposed to anywhere in the scripture be talking to them. I know Martin Luther famously threw an inkwell at the devil. Uh, promise you he didn't hit him. Um, uh, the, 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 that language, I think, is probably metaphoric because as he translated the Bible into German, he's filling the pages with the inkwell that are an opposition to God's enemy. But, but my point is, we're not supposed to be focused on this because, by the way, can you see the demons? You can't. Can you tell someone's demon-possessed by the cut of their eyes? You can't. That's not how this works. Are people around us demonized? They are. And I, the, the summary thing I would say to you is, if you are sealed by the Holy Spirit into the day of redemption, if God the Spirit lives in you, is coming to your heart to abide forever, and if you're a believer, he has then I believe you cannot be demon-possessed. I don't think a demon can enter and enter, abide in that house because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can be influenced. You can be, uh, as, I, as, as we read in Acts uh, chapter 5, why did Satan put it in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And I, you can have uh, wrong ideas. You can get influenced by, by Satan and his fallen angels. But, but you, I don't think he can take up residence in you. And so... Um, so as we talk about this, the point is the power of the Lord Jesus over even the angelic realm. And it's magnificent for us because Jesus is in authority over all things we can see and that which we can't see. So in verse 17, this healing and casting out of demons to fulfill was spoken through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53, 12 of the most magnificent verses in all of Hebrew verse, Hebrew poetry, Isaiah 53. And this is verse four. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. See, he's fulfilling what is, called, what is prophesied of the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. In verses 18 through 20, you have the guy that comes up and says, let me go with you. And the point, apparently the point of this guy, this, this man that wants to be a disciple, I mean, I kind of want to be, this man that hasn't counted the cost and doesn't really want to be Jesus' disciple, listen carefully, disciples, this problem, this is, this is really important for all of us. The problem is what he's trying to get out of, where, where are we taking me? What, you must have a better place to be. It must be better for me if I go with you than what I've got going on. And I gather that from Jesus' answer. In verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Apparently, it's the wherever. 
I'm looking for what you bring, what, what you have to offer. Because of what Jesus said, he said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Where do you think I'm going? See, if it's about the physical, and back to the Sermon on the Mount, if it's about where I'm living or what my lifestyle is like, you don't get it. I'm here to bring you to the Father. That's where we're going. And it's not a place to live. It's not, it's not comfortable or arrangement. And so the scribe is going to have to totally change his scale of values, apparently, to follow the Lord Jesus. And so do you and I. It's not about the physical. It's not about our money. You need to let go of those things. What does Paul say about those that want to get rich? Those who want to be rich in this life, what do they do to themselves? They pierce themselves through with many griefs. Why would you do that? Well, why wouldn't I? It's money. I'm going to go get some. But it's not. It's just piercing yourself through with many griefs. Don't do that. You don't want to be a pincushion. In verse 21 and 22, the guy that wants to bury his father. This guy hasn't counted the cost either. These are rejections Jesus has. He has words for those that have reasons why uh, they've got a wrong motivation or, 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 or a, a, a limited, I, I, I'm here a little bit for you, Lord. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to bury my father. All kinds of speculation about what he's saying. Well, the dad, his dad is elderly, but he's not dead yet. So I'll come follow you after my dad passes away. I can pass the business on to my younger brother and then I'll follow you. That's one interpretation. Another is that dad's lying in state and we've got to go through the burial process and do all that. But whether it's because you don't want to abandon your elderly parents or whether you want to take care of some pressing matter that you're responsible for. Listen, there's nothing in this world or no one in this world that should come between you and being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message Jesus has. That's why he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me, he says, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is not being harsh and saying you can't take care of your family. He's saying the harsh reality is that if taking care of your family is more important to you than me, then you're, you don't understand. This is the principle of the sword. This is the principle of hate your parents, hate your family. He doesn't want you to hate your family. But compared to your devotion and allegiance to him, those other matters are secondary and a far distant second. I hope you understand. This is saying how important it is that you follow him. And this is shocking, very shocking in this traditional culture of the idea of burying a father. There is no higher priority for my money, for my status, for my social stuff, for, for my inheritance. Like this is, this is, there's no more important honor I need to pay to the, to the parents. And we believe in Exodus 20, you're supposed to honor our parents. And Jesus says, this is, this is a more important honor. So in verses 23 through 27, Jesus takes a nap. I think it's important to notice when Jesus is taking a nap, he did not uh, prioritize sleep like sometimes we would like to. But uh, when he can find some time to sleep, he takes it. And this is one of the best ones. He's on a waterbed. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So notice he said, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And then he gets in a boat and the disciples followed him. Right? Everybody's counting, thinking this through. Was that offensive? Does he think he's more important than my parents? I don't know if I'm going with him on that boat. I just feel, I feel, I don't know. I don't know really if I can go, get on board. He's Okay. This is the deal. This is the deal. The kingdom is being offered, and God in the flesh is calling you to himself. And so you've got to make a choice. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and, just, and, uh, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. Now, it doesn't say that it was a light little tempest, and they're just overreacting. It says the water was covering the boat. 
Jesus is just out. And they're uh, dealing with the storm. And it seems like Jesus is not dealing with the storm. Now, I believe that when, when we read that he holds all things together by the word of his power, that he is the creator and the sustainer, the executor of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, that as in his humanity, he's asleep, as God, he's holding all things together by his powerful word, including the molecules of the water that are covering the, the boat. This is the idea. This is the consequence of the scriptures on who we're talking about who's taking a nap. The boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And is that a miracle? Is this the kind of boat where if you're, if you're in, where would you sleep in this little boat? And are you getting soaked by the water as it's coming? I don't know. But I know that Jesus is asleep and the disciples are in an extremist and they think they're going to die. They came to Jesus and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And that is its own devotional verse. Matthew 8, 25 is a life verse. Save us, Lord, we're perishing, absolutely. And notice, he's not stressing. He's not worried about it because he's got this and he needs to save you and you are perishing. And when we get to Matthew 14, Lord, save me is what Peter says as he's sinking. Lord, save me. You know, as he's, he's sinking in the water. <laughs> he's like, help me, save me from this. And, and the Lord does. He reaches his hand out, pulls him out of the water. Life verse. Yes, we laugh at Peter because Jesus is going to rebuke him. Yes, these disciples are about to get a, an earful from the Lord. Why didn't you doubt? Why, did, why didn't you trust me? We know that, that there's, a, there's a, a, a lesson here, but there's also the right attitude. When you're in trouble, Lord, save me. Lord, help us. We're perishing. They did get that part right. He said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Now, don't not wake him up. Don't fail to wake him up if you're afraid, okay, because you know he's going to be down on you for being afraid. You still need to wake him up. But you're supposed to take courage in who he is, and that's faith. Some of you have a latent underlying sense of anxiety all the time, and you don't know why you have it. And you want relief from it, and your spouse wants you to have relief from it, and you're, you know, you're, you're struggling with a latent undercurrent of just in turmoil because of all the things that are out of your control, all the things that you stand to lose, all the concerns that you might have. You've got digestive effects from it. Anxiety, it's a big problem. It's, it's a problem we're all subject to. But here's the solution. Let it go. Whatever you stand to lose, you have Christ. And take that to the bank. It's faith. Faith is the solution to anxiety. When Jesus taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and don't worry about getting all your subsistence and live your life to feed the family, God's got that. You serve him. You make it about him first and foremost and he'll take care of you. This is a faith move. I'm not going to have anxiety about anything as long as I'm resting in the only one who has control of everything. Like I did that, anything and everything. Pastors try to learn to do that kind of rhetoric right there. All right, I'm not going to take any, any concern that I don't first reckon with the one who has control of everything. And, and it's not pie in the sky. This is what, the, they're dying. They're gonna drown. Their life is at stake. The water's covering the boat. Jesus says, why'd you doubt? He, he, in other words, 
His claim on your life that you trust him meets you right at the extremist that you're in, whatever it is. And if it turns out that you go all the way through the valley of the shadow of death, don't worry. You don't need to be afraid of any evil because he's with you. And he's with you now and he's with you when you're absent of the body and present with him. And, um, and that's the attitude, the courage that Christianity draws us to. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. So first he rebuked the disciples. Why are you guys, he says, um, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? That's his first rebuke. And the second one is to the wind and the waves. Because I'm going to talk to the disciples, I'm going to talk to the sea. And the point, as they're going to make, is who is this that has this power? He talked to the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed. Jesus marveled at the centurion. Now the disciples are amazed at Jesus. Notice the way this is some exciting narrative through here. And they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now notice that's a paragraph break. You're like, I also noticed that it's about time for pastor to stop, but we're not through Matthew 8 yet. What will he do? I'm kind of in a cliffhanger. But let me tell you, what happens here when the Lord Jesus uh, does this miracle and the disciples ask a question and we're to the next story, that's Matthew pointing the Bible right at you and saying, what do you do with this? Matthew is asking you to think about who Jesus is. In the quote of the disciples, that question mark, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is, the, this is Jesus saying, do you believe this? After saying to, Mar- to Mary, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe this? We have a de- the demoniac, the, the, the um, let's do a whole thing on the demoniacs next time. And... Um, in the Gadarenes. And we'll talk about the Gadarenes versus the Gerasene and how this all works with the, the legion and the, the swine that run into the water. What you've seen, though, is who Jesus is and what he can do after hearing what he wants, what the platform of his coming kingdom is. This is leading you in looking at his example to know what you should do, how we should be in light of these things. If you ask the question as a disciple or someone trying to study to be a disciple of the Lord, what did they get from these experiences, these encounters? Think about the centurion. He's talking to disciples and there's nobody in Israel like this. And and this is is the future is the Gentiles coming to recline with Abraham and the remnant of Israel. What are the disciples getting out of what he's teaching? You can see all along that mama lion, he's training them to hunt. He's training them to be his disciples, to go do this work that he's going to send them to do when you get to chapter 10. And I think that the nap in the boat message is super powerful. I didn't say, listen, I didn't say that it doesn't hurt. We never want to take someone's pain and say, you shouldn't be feeling pain. That's never a thing in the Bible. Watch Jesus on the cross. Watch Jesus in his, before the, the people flailing, his, him skinning him alive. The, it's not about whether it hurts you. And I see people, Christians that are sophomores that don't know much, they don't know much more than enough to be dangerous. Try to do this with people. Why are you hurting? And we invalidate people's pain. It's not about pain. It's about fear. There's a difference Fear and anxiety are choices that we think we're, we, we can't help because pain is something you can't help. But they're different categories. What you think about it, what you choose to believe about it, is very different from what, what, you, what you're experiencing. And that's the, that, that is all the difference. My pain has a purpose. 
My pain has a termination point. This will pass. My pain is in God's control, not outside of God's control. My pain is something he can bear me through and I can be strengthened in his Holy Spirit through it. Totally different approach to the same experience of pain. That's why he says, you men of little faith, why did you doubt? It's about your faith. It's not about your sense of pain, whether it hurts or not. Oh, I'm tough. That doesn't bother me. What do you mean bother? Does it hurt? Own it. Pain is, 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 is horrible and it's inevitable. And it's the thing we're trying to dodge because we think that comfort is all there is to life. Just get comfortable. Just live a comfortable life. And that's, that's the greatest goal. But it's not. It's not. The greatest goal is the greatest glory of God and that will bring pain. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word, for the message of the Lord Jesus through the pen of Matthew calling disciples to account for not trusting him, you men of little faith. Father, don't let us be men and women of little faith, not trusting you through the hardest, most torturous, fearful moments of life. As they arise, Father, remind us, let your spirit bring to our memory these messages out of Matthew, that the point is our faith. As, as, you've, as your faith is, um, as you've believed, let it be done, it'll be done for you. That the point is our faith, Father, and we need to trust in him who is trustworthy, who is faithful. Thank you that he pioneered the pain. He went through it to a greater extent, more intense than we'll ever, ever will. He endured such um, hostility against himself at the hands of sinners. And he is our example so that we can bear along, we can suffer because we know there's a purpose. Glorify yourself, Father, as we consider Jesus resting on the storm. In his name we pray, amen.